Chapter Twenty of the Revolt of the Angels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France, translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson. Chapter Twenty, The Gardener's Story Continued. The new superstition spread at first over Syria and Africa. It won over the seaports where the filthy rabble swarm, and, penetrating into Italy, infected at first the courtesans and the slaves, and then made rapid progress among the middle classes of the towns. But for a long while the countryside remained undisturbed. As in the past, the villagers consecrated a pine tree to Diana, and sprinkled it every year with the blood of a young boar. They propitiated their lares with the sacrifice of a sow, and offered to Bacchus, benefactor of mankind, a kid of dazzling whiteness, or, if they were too poor for this, at least they had a little wine and a little flour from the vineyard and from the fields for their household gods. We had taught them that it sufficed to approach the altar with clean hands, and that the gods rejoiced over a modest offering. Nevertheless, the reign of Eva proclaimed its advent in a hundred places by its extravagances. The Christians burnt books, overthrew temples, set fire to the towns, and carried on their ravages as far as the deserts. There, thousands of unhappy beings, turning their fury against themselves, lacerated their sides with points of steel. And from the whole earth, the sighs of voluntary victims rose up to God like songs of praise. My shadowy retreat could not escape for long from the fury of their madness. On the summit of the hill which overlooked the olive woods, brightened daily with the sounds of my flute, had stood since the earliest days of the Pax Romana, a small marble temple, round as the huts of our forefathers. It had no walls, but on a base of seven steps sixteen columns rose in a circle with the acanthus of the capitals, bearing a cupola of white tiles. This cupola sheltered a statue of love fashioning his bow, the work of an Athenian sculptor. The child seemed to breathe, joy was welling from his lips, all his limbs were harmonious and polished. I honored this image of the most powerful of all the gods, and I taught the villagers to bear to him as an offering a cup crowned with verbena and filled with wine two summers old. One day, when seated as my custom was at the feet of the god, pondering precepts and songs, an unknown man, wild-looking, with unkempt hair, approached the temple, sprang at one bound up the marble steps, and with savage glee exclaimed, Die, poisoner of souls, and joy and beauty perish with you. He spoke thus, and drawing an axe from his girdle, raised it against the god. I stayed his arm, I threw him down, and trampled him under my feet. Demon, he cried desperately, suffer me to overturn this idol, and you may slay me afterwards. I heeded not his atrocious plea, but leaned with all my might on his chest, which cracked under my knee, and squeezing his throat with my two hands, 
I strangled the impious one. While he lay there, with purple face and lolling tongue, at the feet of the smiling god, I went to purify myself at the sacred stream. Then, leaving this land, now the prey of the Christian, I passed through Gaul and gained the banks of the Saone, whither Dionysus had, in days gone by, carried the vine. The god of the Christians had not yet been proclaimed to this happy people. They worshipped for its beauty a leafy beech tree, whose honored branches swept the ground, and they hung fillets of wool thereon. They also worshipped a sacred stream, and set up images of clay in a dripping grotto. They made offering of little cheeses and a bowl of milk to the nymphs of the woods and mountains. But soon an apostle of sorrow was sent to them by the new god. He was drier than a smoked fish. Although attenuated with fasting and watching, he taught with unabated ardor all manner of gloomy mysteries. He loved suffering and thought it good. His anger fell upon all that was beautiful, comely, and joyous. The sacred tree fell beneath his hatchet. He hated the nymphs because they were beautiful, and he flung imprecations at them when their shining limbs gleamed among the leaves at evening, and he held my melodious flute in aversion. The poor wretch thought that there were certain forms of words wherewith to put to flight the deathless spirits that dwell in the cool groves and in the depths of the woods and on the tops of the mountains he thought to conquer us with a few drops of water over which he had pronounced certain words and made certain gestures the nymphs to avenge themselves appeared to him at nightfall and inflamed him with a desire which the foolish knave thought animal then they fled their laughter scattered like grain over the fields, while their victim lay tossing with burning limbs on his couch of leaves. Thus do the divine nymphs laugh at exorcisers, and mock the wicked and their sordid chastity. The apostle did not do as much harm as he wished, because his teaching was given to the simple souls living in obedience to nature, and because the mediocrity of most of mankind is such that they gain but little from the principles inculcated in them. The little wood in which I dwelt belonged to a Gaul of senatorial family, who retained some traces of Latin elegance. He loved his young freedwoman and shared with her his bed of broidered purple. His slaves cultivated his garden and his vineyard. He was a poet and sang, in imitation of Ausonius, venus whipping her son with roses although a christian he offered me milk fruit and vegetables as if i were the genius of the place in return i charmed his idle moments with the music of my flute and i gave him happy dreams in fact these peaceful gauls knew very little of Ieve and his son but now behold fires looming on the horizon and ashes driven by the windfall within our forest glades. Peasants come driving a long file of wagons along the roads or urging their flocks before them. Cries of terror rise from the villages. The Burgundians are upon us. 
now one horseman is seen lance in hand clad in shining bronze his long red hair falling in two plates on his shoulders then come two then twenty then thousands wild and blood-stained old men and children they put to the sword ay even aged grandams whose gray hairs cleave to the soles of the slaughterer's boots mingled with the brains of babes newborn my young gaul and his young freedwoman stain with their blood the couch broidered with narcissi the barbarians burn the basilicas to roast their oxen whole shatter the amphora and drain the wine in the mud of the flooded cellars their women accompany them huddled half naked in their war chariots when the senate the dwellers in the cities and the leaders of the churches had perished in the flames the burgundians soddened with wine lay down to slumber beneath the arcades of the forum two weeks later one of them might have been seen smiling in his shaggy beard at the little child whom on the threshold of their dwelling his fair-haired spouse gathers in her arms while another kindling the fire of his forge hammers out his iron with measured stroke another sings beneath the oak tree to his assembled comrades of the gods and heroes of his race and yet others spread out for sale stones fallen from heaven aurochs horns and amulets and the former inhabitants of the country regaining courage little by little crept from the woods where they had fled for refuge and returned to rebuild their burnt-down cabins plough their fields and prune their vines once more life resumed its normal course but those times were the most wretched that mankind had yet experienced the barbarians swarmed over the whole empire their ways were uncouth and as they nurtured feelings of vengeance and greed they firmly believed in the ransom of sin the fable of Eva and his son pleased them and they believed it all the more easily in that it was taught them by the romans whom they knew to be wiser than themselves and to whose arts and mode of life they yielded secret admiration alas the heritage of greece and rome had fallen into the hands of fools all knowledge was lost in those days it was held to be a great merit to sing among the choir and those who remembered a few sentences from the bible passed for prodigious geniuses there were still poets as there were birds but their verse went lame in every foot the ancient demons the good genii of mankind shorn of their honors driven forth pursued hunted down remained hidden in the woods there if they still showed themselves to men they adopted to hold them in awe a terrible face a red green or black skin baleful eyes an enormous mouth fringed with boar's teeth horns a tail and sometimes a human face on their bellies the nymphs remained fair and the barbarians ignorant of the winsome names they bore in other days called them fairies and imputing to them a capricious character and puerile tastes both feared and loved them 
we had suffered a grievous fall and our ranks were sadly thinned nevertheless we did not lose courage and maintaining a laughing aspect and a benevolent spirit we were in those direful days the real friends of mankind perceiving that the barbarians grew daily less sombre and less ferocious we lent ourselves to the task of conversing with them under all sorts of disguises we incited them with a thousand precautions and by prudent circumlocutions not to acknowledge the old Ieve as an infallible master, not blindly to obey his orders, and not to fear his menaces. When need was, we had recourse to magic. We exhorted them unceasingly to study nature and to strive to discover the traces of ancient wisdom. These warriors from the north, rude though they were, were acquainted with some mechanical arts, they thought they saw combats in the heavens the sound of the harp drew tears from their eyes and perchance they had souls capable of greater things than the degenerate gauls and romans whose lands they had invaded they knew not how to hew stone or to polish marble but they caused porphyry and columns to be brought from rome and from ravenna their chief men took for their seal a gem engraved by a Greek in the days when beauty reigned supreme. They raised walls with bricks, cunningly arranged like ears of corn, and succeeded in building quite pleasing-looking churches, with cornices upheld by consoles depicting grim faces and heavy capitals whereon were represented monsters devouring one another. We taught them letters and sciences, a mouthpiece of their god, one Gerbert, took lessons in physics, arithmetic, and music with us, and it was said that he had sold us his soul. Centuries passed, and man's ways remained violent. It was a world given up to fire and blood. The successors of the studious Gerbert, not content with the possession of souls, the profit one gains thereby are lighter than air, wished to possess bodies also. They pretended that their universal and prescriptive monarchy was held from a fisherman on the lake of Tiberius. One of them thought for a moment to prevail over the loutish Germanus, successor to Augustus. But finally the spiritual had to come to terms with the temporal, and the nations were torn between two opposing masters. Nations took shape amid horrible tumult. On every side were wars, famines, and internecine conflicts. Since they attributed their innumerable ills that fell upon them to their god, they called him the most good, not by way of irony, but because to them the best was he who smote the hardest. In those days of violence, to give myself leisure for study, I adopted a role which may surprise you, but which was exceedingly wise. Between the Saône and the mountains of Charolais, where the cattle pasture, there lies a wooded hill sloping gently down to fields watered by a clear stream. There stood a monastery celebrated throughout the Christian world. 
I hid my cloven feet under a robe and became a monk in this abbey, where I lived peacefully, sheltered from the men-at-arms, who, to friend or foe alike, showed themselves equally exacting. Man, who had relapsed into childhood, had all his lessons to learn over again. Brother Luke, whose cell was next to mine, studied the habits of animals, and taught us that the weasel conceives her young within her ear. I culled simples in the fields wherewith to soothe the sick, who until then were made by way of treatment to touch the relics of saints. In the abbey were several demons similar to myself, whom I recognized by their cloven feet and by their kindly speech. We joined forces in our endeavors to polish the rough minds of the monks. While the little children played at hopscotch under the abbey walls, our friends, the monks, devoted themselves to another game equally unprofitable, at which, nevertheless, I joined them, for one must kill time. That, when one comes to think of it, is the sole business of life. Our game was a game of words, which pleased our coarse yet subtle minds, set school fulminating against school, and put all Christendom in an uproar. We formed ourselves into two opposing camps. One camp maintained that before there were apples there was the apple, that before there were popinjays there was the popinjay, that before there were lewd and greedy monks there was the monk, lewdness and greed, that before there were feet and before there were posteriors in this world the kick in the posterior must have had existence for all eternity in the bosom of God. The other camp replied that, on the contrary, apples gave man the idea of the apple, popinjays the idea of the popinjay, monks the idea of the monk, greed, and lewdness, and that the kick in the posterior existed only after having been duly given and received. The players grew heated and came to fisticuffs, I was an adherent of the second party, which satisfied my reason better, and which was, in fact, condemned by the Council of Soissons. Meanwhile, not content with fighting among themselves, vassal against suzerain, suzerain against vassal, the great lords took it into their heads to go and fight in the East. They said, as well as I can remember, that they were going to deliver the tomb of the Son of God. They said so, but their adventurous and covetous spirit excited them to go forth and seek lands, women, slaves, gold, myrrh, and incense. These expeditions, need it be said, proved disastrous. But our thick-headed compatriots brought back with them the knowledge of certain crafts and oriental art and a taste for luxury. Henceforth we had less difficulty in making them work and in putting them in the way of inventions. We built wonderfully beautiful churches with daringly pierced arches, lancet-shaped windows, high towers, thousands of pointed spires, which, rising in the sky towards Iove, bore at one and the same time the prayers of the humble and the threats of the proud. 
for it was all as much our doing as the work of men's hands. And it was a strange sight to see men and demons working together at a cathedral, each one sawing, polishing, collecting stones, graving, on capital and on cornice, nettles, thorns, thistles, wild parsley and wild strawberry, carving faces of virgins and saints and weird figures of serpents, fishes with asses' heads, apes scratching their buttocks, each one, in fact, putting his own particular talent, mocking, sublime, grotesque, modest, or audacious, into the work and making of it all a harmonious cacophony, a rapturous anthem of joy and sorrow, a babble of victory. At our instigation the carvers, the goldsmiths, the enamelers, accomplished marvels, and all the sumptuary arts flourished at once. There were silks at Lyon, tapestries at Arras, linen at Reims, cloth at Rouen. The good merchants rode on their palfreys to the fairs, bearing pieces of velvet and brocade, embroideries, orphreys, jewels, vessels of silver, and illuminated books. Strollers and players set up their trestles in the churches and in the public squares, and represented, according to their lights, simple chronicles of heaven, earth, and hell. Women decked themselves in splendid raiment and lisped of love. In the spring, when the sky was blue, nobles and peasants were possessed with the desire to make merry in the flower-strewn meadows. The fiddler tuned his instrument, and ladies, knights, and demoiselles, townfolk, villagers, and maidens, holding hands, began the dance. But suddenly war, pestilence, and famine entered the circle, and death, tearing the violin from the fiddler's hands, led the dance. Fire devoured village and monastery. The men-at-arms hanged the peasants on the signposts at the crossroads when they were unable to pay ransom, and bound pregnant women to tree-trunks, where at night the wolves came and devoured the fruit within the womb. The poor people lost their senses. Sometimes, peace being re-established, and good times come again, they were seized with mad, unreasoning terror, abandoned their homes, and rushed hither and thither in troops, half-naked, tearing themselves with iron hooks, and singing. I do not accuse Iavet and his son of all this evil. Many ill things occurred without him, and even in spite of him. But where I recognize the instigation of the all-good, as they called him, was in the custom instituted by his pastors, and established throughout Christendom, of burning, to the sound of bells and the singing of psalms, both men and women who, taught by the demons, professed concerning this God opinions of their own. End of chapter 20